So this is 2 Corinthians for beginners. We're in lesson number five, Apostolic Fellowship. If you're following along in your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, verse 1, and we'll be into the text momentarily. So in our last uh, section, we saw Paul reviewing different facets of his ministry with you know, the church uh, in order to compare his work with the work of those teachers who were accusing him and creating dissension among the Corinthians. So this letter is sent to them, the second letter is sent to them because there's trouble in that congregation. First letter, the trouble was their behavior. Second letter uh, is because uh, people have kind of you know, crept into this uh, congregation and started to, um, started to undermine his authority, started to criticize him. Uh, with the view of taking over the leadership. So his purpose is to get the Corinthians to judge him not on what you know, the troublemakers are saying about him, but on what he has actually done among them. Don't judge me by their words. Judge me by what I have done for you. That's what you should judge me by. He also wants to retain the fellowship that they used to share together and this is his appeal in the final verses of this passage. This also serves as a, a bridge. Remember I told you Paul, he builds bridge, bridge ideas to go from one idea to the other. So this is also a bridge um, uh, for the discussion about fellowship that he will begin in the next section. First of all, let's uh, talk a little bit about fellowship because he's going to discuss that. Uh, as I said, this section deals with fellowship, but not with the fellowship that we are normally accustomed to, not the definition of fellowship that we often uh, give to this word. You know, our general idea of fellowship is socializing or getting together to, to eat together. Nothing wrong with that, obviously, but that's usually our thinking as far as fellowship is concerned. Uh, and as I said, this is a form of fellowship, you know, getting together to eat and share some time together, but it's not the only kind, that's my point, it's not the only kind uh, of fellowship that we have. The word fellowship comes from a Greek word which means to share or to participate or to associate. So under the variable meanings of the word fellowship, uh, it could refer to a variety of things. Uh, associating together with others, you know, Acts chapter 2 uh, verse uh, 42, uh, for social functions, which is the most common way we think of fellowship, but also to participate in an activity, Philippians chapter 1 verse 5, and not necessarily a, a social activity. It could be an activity of service. So on, the, you know, on Friday, you know, they delivered, I'll talk about this in the announcement, but on Friday they delivered a whole bunch of new chairs. They had to be unboxed, unpacked, you know, and all that business. And there were several volunteers that came to, to help out. We were having fellowship. We didn't eat. There's no food in sight. <laughs> but we were having fellowship. What were we doing? We were participating together in doing what? In, 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 a, in a kind of service to the church. So that's a kind of fellowship. And then of course to share what you have. The, the collection we take up 
It is also a fellowship. It's a sharing that we do together for the purpose of supporting the church and its good works. So in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul is going to talk about fellowship, but not just socializing. In this chapter, he's going to review some of the events connected with a special collection that he's taking up. And he's going to teach them about the Christian attitude regarding fellowship or sharing. And in this case, sharing the responsibility for a monetary gift to the church. So in the middle of you know, uh, all of this you know, writing back and forth, there's another matter that Paul has to deal with and that is the special collection from the poor. He's not only, he's not only talking uh, to the Corinthians in the first letter about their conduct and the scandals that are taking place and he has to kind of give them a a spiritual attitude adjustment in 1 Corinthians. Now in 2 Corinthians, he's being attacked by people and he's kind of defending. All of this is going on, yes, but in the middle of all of this, he's in the, he's in the process of trying to gather funds to help the poor in the area of Judea. We read about this special collection actually in different places in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 11 and in Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 16. So it was an ongoing work that he was doing, collecting money for the poor in Judea. So part of Paul's overall mission work was to collect money for the poor brethren in Judea. And we see him mentioning this work, as I say, in other letters. This was an ongoing work that he was directing, not just in Corinth, but in all the churches. He was encouraging all the churches to participate, to fellowship, to have fellowship in this special collection. Now, the collection, this particular collection, had started in Corinth sometime before. And it had started in Corinth before Paul had written them the first Corinthian letter. So when the first letter was written, Paul included instructions as to the manner that the money was to be collected and the spirit with which the people should give. So the Corinthians had corrected many things based on the first letter, but it seems that the rebuke that he had given them had kind of slowed down the preparations for that collection. You know, <laughs> In a local congregation, I think the preacher knows better. If you're going to have a special collection on that day to raise money for a special project that that preacher is kind of promoting in the church, that's not the Sunday to preach a very hard lesson on everybody you know, shaping up. <laughs> because the church will answer you through their pocketbooks. So this is what happened here. You know, he writes them a pretty strong letter and whoops, all of a sudden <laughs> they're a little cool to the idea of collecting the money. Human, it's just human nature. I, I keep saying that to you. I, when I read this, uh, these letters, these epistles, I, I'm so amazed by how normal it is. Sure, there are miracles and you know, these marvelous things that are taking place, but if you read between the lines, it's just so human. It's just so normal. Okay? 
So in this letter, Paul takes the opportunity to reawaken that, quote, fellowship or that participation in this special collection. He's going to do this by comparing their giving with the giving of other people, other churches, and then compare both of these with the ideal in Christian giving. So we begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's read some, some verses here. It says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. So in 1 Corinthians 16.5, Paul mentioned that he would be going through Macedonia on his way to Corinth. In Romans 15.26, he writes that these churches shared with him uh, you know, money and he boasts of their generosity. And he does so in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. In 2 Corinthians, he mentions these churches in Macedonia. He mentions them again and he mentions their generosity as an example to the Corinthians who have had a false start in their quote fellowship or sharing regarding the special collection. Isn't that what parents do? Why can't you be like your sister? <laughs> she picks up her room. She comes in on time. She doesn't break curfew. She does her homework. Why can't you be more like her? Of course, as parents, we know, does that tactic work? Not so much, right? But anyways, this is what Paul is doing. You know, they've slowed down on their, special, on their collection front. And so what does he do? He says, oh, those churches in Macedonia, boy, those guys are givers. <laughs> so in verse one, he introduces the idea, he reminds them about this special collection that has faded. And then in verses two to five, he describes their situation and attitude in this matter of giving. Uh, the Macedonians. Their generosity was amazing, he says, in light of their suffering. You know, usually when people are suffering, that's not a good time to remind them or ask them to help other people. Uh, but these brethren, even though they were suffering various threats, he doesn't mention it here, but in other places we understand even though they were suffering various trials and tribulations, he says they gave generously. They gave a lot of money. He says they gave more than they could afford. They gave sacrificially. He tells them that they gave enthusiastically. It's amazing. He says these people, they begged me. They begged me so that I would allow them to give. Imagine. The churches beg, please, please let us give. Great attitude. And they gave sincerely, first in obedience and holiness to the Lord. In other words, they conducted themselves properly. 
and then they gave their means to the brethren. Not as, not as guilt money, but from a holy life. So imagine if a tornado came through here and you know, ripped off our roof and you know, just made a shambles of our building and we had a long, difficult you know, recovery. Even though there's insurance, you never win when something like that happens. Imagine on the Sunday after that, we're, we're, we're meeting with our, at least the new folding chairs were saved. But anyways, we're meeting with, on the chairs and, and one of the elders gets up and says, well, you know, let's be thankful no one was killed, you know, even though the building was destroyed. And by the way, we're going to have a special collection today to help the church in Nakoma Park because they lost all their building. You think that would be the good Sunday to... <laughs> now Paul says, these guys in Macedonia, that's exactly what happened. In the middle of their suffering, in the middle of their trials, Paul didn't ask them, they asked Paul if they could give in order to help the poor brethren in Judea. So generous giving, will, willing giving, sincere giving equals acceptable giving. Acceptable, not to the church in Macedonia, acceptable before God. So these Macedonians had mastered the virtue of Christian giving. And here's where we could use another word, right? Fellowship, sharing, same thing. So they mastered the virtue of Christian giving that Paul holds them up as an example of what giving should be like. This is how it should be. Of course, the examples for the, uh, for the Corinthians, but it's for us as well uh, today. So uh, Paul reminds them of their own original commitment and possibly the reasoning that motivated them to begin with. So he shares that beginning in verse seven. He says, but just as you abound in everything, meaning everything what? Well, they have gifts, they have spiritual gifts. Many of these people in that church speak in tongues and they're able to do miracles. You know, I mean, but just as you abound in everything, he says, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. So he acknowledges the gifts and the talents that they already possess and he encourages them to raise their giving to the standards they already have in other areas already. As far as the knowledge of the word, you people are, are, are gifted. As far as being able to you know, express uh, uh, praise and, 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 and prophecy and speaking in tongues, you people have all those gifts. You, know, you, you, you guys are on the cutting edge of spirituality. He says, how about your giving? How about that gift? How about that virtue? How about raising that virtue up to the same level that your other virtues are at? In verse eight, he continues, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of uh, your love also. He says that he didn't command that this collection be made. This was never a diktat coming from the pulpit, you must give. He doesn't want their giving to be out of compulsion, but rather as a proof of their love, like it was for the Macedonians. I mean, again, same thing today. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Money talks the loudest. And when it comes to proving love and sincerity, the area of giving is an unmistakable indicator. 
you know, a little bit like James says, you show me your love by what you say, I'll show you my love by my checkbook. Because the checkbook does not lie. So he's given them a chance to demonstrate in a concrete way what they have already claimed verbally. That's the point. They, the, they were the ones who said, hey, you know what, let's get a collection going, let's help the saints in Judea, this is the right thing to do, blah, 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 blah. You know? But they've kind of fallen down, they haven't had the collection. And he's saying, it was your idea that you sparked this whole thing and, and it caught on and the churches up in Macedonia, they're giving and they're, you know, their attitude is great. Well, you, you need to follow up. So verse nine, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. So of course the prime example is Jesus who endured the humiliation of the cross in order to save. Save us, save them. His wealth, meaning Jesus, his wealth was his divine position. His poverty was suffering and death. Our wealth is that we now will also enjoy a divine position with him in heaven. This should be a strong motivator for their giving and of course for ours as, for ours as well. Verse 10 and 11. He says, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, so there may be also the completion of it by your uh, ability. So a direct reference to the fact that they were the ones who originally offered to help. It was a good thing that they desired to do a good thing. This is the key ingredient in this fellowship or sharing. However, it will not be an advantage to them if they don't complete what they started. I've always said, you know, it's easy to start. The hard part is finishing. You know, in the marathon, everybody's at the starting line, they're limbering up, they're, you know, they're stretching, they got their number out here, they got their water bottle, they're ready to go. You know? uh, but by, by mile 17, yeah, you got the guys by the side of the road who are kind of being sick. You know? Shouldn't have had that burrito before the, before the big race. And by mile 23, you know, half the field is, is, is gone and the, and the runners who are still in it, their lungs are burning, their, their legs feel like two pieces of lead. And now it's not just the joy of running or the anticipation that you see on their faces, it's pain that you see on their faces. Pain, they're in pain, physical pain. It's just one step after another, one, you know. And by the time you get to the finish line, wow, the guys crossed the line and the, you know, it's as if they couldn't go three more feet. They just, whew, many of them collapse at the end. That's the image of life, isn't it? especially spiritual life. It's easy to start. It's easy to be, go under the water, come out of the water. That's the easy part. The hard part is finishing. That's what Paul says here. You guys were enthusiastic to start. You're, yeah, let's do this. But now you're, you know, you're slowing down when it comes to finish. In verse 12, 
He says, for if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Paul explains an important principle in Christian giving. If a person wants to give, God accepts his give in relationship to what he has, not to how poor he is. Not having a lot to give is balanced and made acceptable by a willing heart and a sacrificial attitude. This is what makes a, a poor man's gift equal to a rich man's gift. His willingness to give and the sacrifice he makes in his giving. You know, between rich brethren and poor brethren, you know, they don't give equal amounts. You know, the guy that's making $200,000 a year is, uh, is, is likely to give more than the, the widow who's on a, a, a government pension. Right? But both of them can make an equal sacrifice. The idea is uh, not equal giving, equal sacrifice for the one who looks at the heart. Okay. Verse 13, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need that there may be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. So he doesn't want to make the Jerusalem brethren rich at the expense of the Corinthian brethren. He wants them to share what they have so everyone can have a portion. And he also suggests that the tables may be turned one day. You know, this can also refer to the fact that they needed the gospel that once came from Jerusalem and now Jerusalem you know, needs food, physical food, that these people can provide for them. In any case, the idea is that the, the sharing from a willing heart is a sign of sincere love and will produce a, a balance and an equality in our brotherhood. And he quotes Exodus 16, 18 to show this equality when the, you know, the manna came from heaven, no matter how much you gathered, no one had more than a day's supply. So if you were elderly and feeble and couldn't get out very much to, to, to collect the manna, uh, you didn't, you didn't you know, lack any. And if you, you and your wife and your three young healthy sons got out and collected a lot of manna, you didn't have more than a day's supply anyways. God made sure that things were equal. So now he goes into some of the details about the collection regarding their, uh, now that he's encouraged them regarding their original commitment, he's going to explain the procedure being used to collect the money and who has been given charge over it. So verse 16, but thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, has gone to you of his own accord. So Titus has recently come from Corinth and Paul is sending him back there to organize the collection of this money. And he's going to, uh, 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 he's going, Titus is going of his own accord. He's anxious to, to, to complete this new assignment, if you will. We keep on reading. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches 
And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord Himself and to show our readiness, taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift, for we have regard, uh, for, we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. In the church, when it comes to money, it gets tricky. There's a reason that Marty, for example, and I and, and Mike, we don't see the books. In other words, we have no idea who gives what, because it's tricky. There's a reason why uh, you know, we don't handle the money. The money is handled by somebody else, because handling money is tricky. A lot of things can go wrong. A lot of false accusations could start flying around. So Paul is addressing, again, <laughs> human nature, human nature. So in addition to Titus, he is sending another brother of good reputation selected by other churches known to them. Of course, in those days, we don't know who this brother is here of great repute. We, you know, we can speculate, but we don't know. But these two are going to work for the, uh, uh, for the work and serve as those who guarantee that all is done in an honorable way. We're sending Titus, but not by himself. Not a good idea. Just one guy handling the money. Not a good idea. We're going to send two of them together. And we're going to send people you know, from different churches that have been you know, selected so that everything is above board. Paul is careful not to give his accusers any reason uh, to cause more uh, trouble. In verse 22, we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. So he mentions yet another brother who will be traveling with them as well. And he does this as a form of introduction. Verse 23, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting in you. So he encourages the Corinthians to receive these brethren, work with them, reminding them that the other churches who appointed these brethren here are going to be observing the events taking place. In other words, in still other words, Paul is saying to them, other people are watching you. You know, do right, bear down, follow the example of the Macedonians. A, because it's the right thing to do. B, because you're the first ones who said you were going to do it. And C, because other churches are watching you, what you're going to do. So now we go to chapter nine. Paul says, for it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. This is the collection now he's talking about. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. In today's language, don't make me look bad. <laughs> don't make me look bad. 
And don't you make yourselves look bad. Everybody's watching you. He also says, you know, I went out on a limb and I used you guys as an example to stir up these people so that they would be generous. Don't make me look bad. And, and of course, this, this term did not exist in the Jewish or Greek vernacular. He was hedging his bet. He was hedging his bet. Instead of just popping up there and saying, OK, hey, guess what, church? Today is the special. He doesn't know. He sent the brethren down to get things ready, to make sure that nothing would you know, go wrong. So he's motivated the other churches in this matter by boasting of the Corinthians. The other churches have given liberally. He's sending this delegation ahead of time to prepare the offering so that when he comes there'll be no embarrassments. Especially if he brings with him some Macedonian brothers who have themselves given based on Corinth's enthusiasm. How embarrassing would that be? And he also wants the attitude to be right, that no one think that he's forcing them out of greed for money, but that, he, uh, but, but, uh, but that their offering be a free will offering and a generous one. You know, we're sometimes uncomfortable with special collections or purposing because we feel it's not a New Testament form of giving. But note the elaborate preparations and the exhortation going into this special collection. And note it was strictly for benevolent purposes. And we to this day continue to do special collections for the same thing, right? For emergency needs, for Russian orphans, for Haitian missions. And you know, recently went to the elders to ask for extra money out of the mission budget to, uh, uh, for um, uh, Jeffrey Karima. An opportunity has opened up for him in another country, in Malawi. People who reached out to us at Bible Talk and they needed a teacher. So we've, you know, the elders permitted that we use some of that money to, 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 to send Jeffrey, who's in Kenya. He and his wife are going to take a plane and go to Malawi and for a week teach in these churches that are not churches of Christ. They're just churches. They're just a couple of hundred people gathered together studying the Bible under no particular banner who stumbled across Bible Talk who wrote to us and said, could you, could you send us some resources? Because you know, we, we, we've gotten this far in our teaching, but we don't know where to go from here. So we said, hey, we'll do better than that. We'll send our missionary that we support in Kenya, we'll send him to you, a live, a live person who will spend a week with your, with your preachers and with your churches teaching you. Does that sound like the New Testament to you? I don't know. I, I, seem to, I seem to have seen that pattern in the, new, in the book of Acts somewhere. All right. So Paul now summarizes the essence of Christian fellowship or giving as it is done to please God. Uh, verse five. So he says, so I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead uh, to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Then he says, now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is the basic principle. The more you give, the more you get. Some TV preachers eager to get rich 
have interpreted this passage to mean the more you give to me, the preacher, the more God will bless you with health and business success and so on and so forth. We know that's not what he is saying here, don't we? Verse seven, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So he explains the way that God blesses the abundant giver. First, he repeats the idea that attitude is so important. A willing, cheerful giver is the first priority. Not from guilt or compulsion or fear or doubt or manipulation. A person who considers carefully what to give, decides to give it and then offers it as a gift to God. I mean, usually you're happy when you offer a gift in that frame of mind. Verse eight, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. So the more you give, the more God will provide for you to give again. It's not if you're generous you know, in your giving, God will make you rich. That's, that's called the prosperity gospel. A lot, a lot of people preach that. But the passage says, the more you give, the more God will give you so that you can continue giving. Because it is more what? It is more blessed to give. So how does God bless us? He enables us to give even more generously than we have in the past. That's the blessing. God has a lot of good works and He will bless those people who understand that their blessings aren't for hoarding or wasting, but for investing in the kingdom. God will provide everything you need for yourself and then He will add to this an extra measure so that you can do good works. God doesn't want you to take the food out of the mouths of your children to give to poor people somewhere else. There's nowhere in the Bible. His point is, I'll take care of you. Stop worrying about that. Seek first the kingdom. Seek how you can serve me. I'll take care of the basics. Unfortunately, what we do is we invest all of our emotional energy into taking care of the basics. Then we got nothing left after that. But God says, you know, I'll take, that's a promise, that's a given. I'll take care of you, that's a given. So verses 12 to 14, he says, for the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgiving to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God 
in you. So the bonus is that the doing of good through the giving to the saints is not only providing for the poor, but it's also providing an outpouring of thanksgiving to God because of the generosity of the brethren. I go back to my example here of, uh, of Jeffrey in Kenya. The, the, uh, he sends me copies of the emails he's exchanging with that other person in Malawi, and that person is saying, Praise be to God, how wonderful it is that you are coming and praise God for the church that sent you. That's us. Some guy we would never know and we would never hear of in a million years. In a country few of us could actually describe where it's located. That guy and hundreds of believers are praising God for the generosity of the church that sent them a teacher that will help them get to the next level in their spirituality. That's exactly what he's saying here. So it's a, it's a, it's a win, 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 win situation. Win number one, the poor are fed. That's win number one. Win number two, the contributors are blessing the poor and storing up blessings for themselves. There's the second win. The third win, their faith is proven sincere. The church is being built up by the witness of the Corinthians who are proving that their faith is sincere. The idea being if they can do it, I can do it. Like I said, it wasn't just talk on their behalf. They opened up their pocketbooks. And then win number four, God is praised by all. Not just by some, everyone's praising God. And that's, that's how you know that what you're doing is truly of the spirit. Because everybody's praising God. So Paul sees this entire situation as an opportunity to rejoice and he does so in the final verse 15. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Only God can manage a situation where there is a win, 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 win situation. Human beings, usually what we're shooting for is just a win, win situation. With God it's 100% more. All right, so we're going to stop right here, our assignment for next week as we move ahead is 2 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13 to the end actually, it'll be our last, our last lesson in this series. All right, thank you for your attention. We are dismissed.